0: Sending Christmas cards is a holiday tradition practiced by 90% of Americans. Did you know that almost 2 billion Christmas cards get sent each Christmas season? But few people will send as many Christmas cards as our nation's president. Richard Nixon mailed 40,000 Christmas cards his first year in office. Jimmy and Rosalind Carter... They sent out 125,000 Christmas cards each year. They were in office. The Clintons had a Christmas card list of 400,000 addressees. George and Laura Bush, they were the big senders. They dropped 1.4 million Christmas cards in the White House mailbox. This year's presidential Christmas card features the Obama's dog, Bo frolicking out in the snow on the White House lawn. Have you received your White House presidential Christmas card yet? Don't worry, it'll probably arrive tomorrow. The very first Christmas card was created in 1843 by a man named James Horsley. It was three inches by five inches and it consisted of three panels. The left panel depicted a man feeding the hungry. The right panel pictures a woman clothing the poor. But in the middle of the card, the center panel, the card's focal point, there is a family. It's actually a three-generation family, kids and parents and grandparents. At the very center of the first Christmas card ever produced, there is a family. And how appropriate. For if we go back in time, back, back, back in time, we would find that Christmas has always been a family affair. Christmas is a celebration of family life. This is certainly what God intended when He created Christmas. God identified Himself as a family unit, and then He sent His Son to join an earthly family. From the beginning, Christmas was all about family. Realize the Christmas story predates God's Spirit overshadowing the virgin womb of a maiden named Mary. It begins long before the child is born and laid in a manger. Even shepherds and wise men come much later. Christmas starts in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5. For here the writer of the book of Hebrews, he puts it, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This morning, we're going to begin a series of Bible studies I've entitled, What Christmas is All About. This morning, we'll discuss how Christmas is about family. Next week, how it's about faith. And on Christmas Eve, how Christmas is about worship. And our text for all three of these lessons will come from the book of Hebrews. Now here's some important background on a very significant book. Hebrews was written to the Hebrews. It was written to Jewish readers. And in its pages we find an explanation of the preeminence of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know the Jews were and are proud of their religion. And yet Hebrews explains how that Jesus is better than Moses and better than the Levitical priests and better than the law and the sacrifices and even the Jewish temple. In fact, Hebrews chapter 1 explains the Son of God's superiority over the angels of God. Jesus is better than angels. In Judaism, angels were highly revered. Since they dwelt in God's presence in heaven, they were envied by men on earth. Angels had access to the glory of God. The Jews considered the angels national heroes. Angels were active in God's dealings with mankind. In fact, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen points out that the conveyance of the law to Moses came through the agency of angels. The Hebrew people practically worshipped the angels. And yet, in Hebrews chapter 1, we learn that angels are and always have been considered servants. Whereas, on the other hand, Jesus Christ is God's only begotten Son. The angels in heaven are merely hired hands, whereas Jesus sits enthroned at God's right hand. Hebrews chapter 1 takes us back in time, before the first Christmas, back to the Psalms. The author quotes Psalm 2 verse 7, a prediction of God's coming king, the one who will reign forever from Israel. He says, all the nations are his possession. This king's rule extends to the ends of the earth. He'll govern with a rod of iron. Everyone will obey him. And then God says of this future king here in Hebrews, he quotes Psalm 2 verse 7, You are my son, today I have begotten you. This coming earthly king will be God's own son. In the same verse, chapter 1, verse 5, the writer of Hebrews, he double dips back into the Old Testament and he quotes God again. This time, 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. Here God is speaking to a man after his own heart, King David. He promises David an heir who will reign for all eternity. And again, Messiah is in the viewfinder. God says of him, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. God spoke of Jesus not just as a king and as a ruler, but as a member of his own family. Now don't underestimate the lofty status Messiah is given when God calls him his own son. To the Jews, this concept of sonship is charged with heavy theological implications. See, here's how the Jewish mindset worked. If you're the son of a bumblebee, that makes you a bumblebee. If you're the son of a cow, guess what you are? A cow. If you're the son of a man, that makes you a man. And if you're the son of God, then you are the very essence of God. Begotten of God is to be divine. So when the author of Hebrews quotes God in Psalm 2 verse 7, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. And then again in 2 Samuel 7 verse 14, I will be to Him a Father, and He shall be to me a Son. And he ascribes these passages to Jesus. He's making a bold declaration. Jesus is no mere servant of God. He is far more than an angel or a messenger. Jesus is God in the flesh. Even today, when Jews come together in their synagogues for the Sabbath or at their feasts, they quote the great Shema. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 declares, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the Jewish creed. This is the motto of monotheism. This sums up Jewish faith. There is but one God. And Christianity agrees. There is only one God. But the Shema itself reveals deeper truths about God. For the Hebrew word translated one is the word "ekad," which speaks not of an absolute unity, but a compound unity. When the rabbis explain Echad, they hold up a fist. And they point out that though this is one fist, this one fist is made up of five distinct fingers. It's a unity with multiple components. This is how God speaks of Himself in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. When God created the man, we're told, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Notice God uses plural pronouns to describe Himself. He speaks of us and our. When God speaks of Himself, He does so as a plurality. This is what the Bible does. This is how the Bible explains God throughout. God is one God, but He exists in three persons. Even the Hebrew word translated God teaches this doctrine. The name Elohim is the plural form of the word El. God is one God, but He exists in a plurality in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the triune nature of God, or what we refer to as the Trinity. You see, God is love. But for love to exist, it has to have an object. This is true even of an eternal God. And God's love has and always had had an object. Even when nothing existed but God, He existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a loving unity among the three members of the Trinity. It reminds me of the little girl who was asked if she knew the term for the nature of God. Of course, the teacher, the Sunday school teacher, was expecting to hear the word trinity. Instead, the little girl answered, The triplets? <laughs> well, she was close. She was right about God's threeness, but forgot about God's oneness. And yet, here's the point I'm making from the beginning, God chose to define His very nature in terms of a family. God is the Father and the Son. And the Spirit, the first member of the Godhead, He assumes the role of a Father. And then the Father calls the second member of the Trinity His Son. As God states in Hebrews, I will be to Him a Father and He shall be to me a Son. Here's a fascinating thought that you should consider this morning. The eternal nature of God is like a family. Thus, is it any wonder when God created the first man, He put him in a family? Adam was created, then Eve. Then they were told to be fruitful and multiply. That was fun. Which reminds me of a joke. Do you know what Adam and Eve were doing after God kicked them out of the Garden of Eden? They were raising Cain. It was a joke. I didn't say it was a good joke. It was a joke. Adam and Eve got to work on a family. Hey, did you know the first institution, the first community structure that God established on the earth was not a government or a school or a city hall or a temple or even a church. It was a family. This is why family life is so sacred And this is why the biblical definition for family is worth fighting to protect. Uh, In the name of fairness, secular society may choose to award economic benefits to folks in various types of relationships. That's That's an issue to debate. But that's a far cry from changing the very definition of marriage and rewiring family life. You need to know that modern relationships in biblical families are not created equal. God's ideal is for one man and one woman to rear their kids in a lifelong marital commitment. Certainly some people can achieve a measure of success through inferior arrangements, but we're foolish to think that an exception should make the rule. I mean, think about it. Just because a blind contestant might be able to win a skeet shooting competition doesn't mean that everybody should close their eyes before they pull the trigger on a rifle. I mean, the exception doesn't make the rule. For centuries, the biblical schematic for marriage has provided a solid foundation for Western society. It's provided a healthy environment for children to be raised. In addition, biblical marriage is the preference of an all-wise and loving God. If we think we're smarter than God, Beware. The nuclear family is the configuration that's sacred and that's special because it is the arrangement blessed by God. Thus it should be favored over other alternatives. Not because you said so or because I said so, but because God said so. There's nothing prejudicial about a society recognizing the best arrangement for family than promoting it and protecting it for the greater good of its citizens. That's wise. Here's the inescapable truth. When it came time for the holy, sinless, almighty, all-knowing God to join the human race, guess where He chose to be born? He was birthed into a family of one man and one woman united together in the bonds of marriage. Think of it this way. God left his heavenly confines for a barren land, a land scarred by sin, a land full of hate and anger and lust and death and selfishness. That's the world in which we live. When Jesus came to earth, his new environment was nothing like the home he'd left. Heaven has as much in common with earth as Hawaii does with Alaska. This is why Jesus was born into the one earthly environment most like heaven. A family. Jesus was the son in heaven long before he was a son on earth. At Christmas, we talk about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Or in a stable. Or that he was laid in a manger. But here's the best answer to the question. Where was Jesus born Into a family. God chose the family of Joseph and his wife Mary to rear his son. Reminds me of a three-year-old named Blake. His mom and dad had been careful to teach him just how much Jesus loved him. One day, his dad asked the little guy, Blake, where does Jesus live? The father expected the son to answer, in heaven or maybe in my heart or even in Bethlehem since it was Christmas time. After thinking a while, though, little Blake replied, Dad, Jesus lives in our basement. Well, that made sense to Blake, since that's where the family stored all of their Christmas decorations. The nativity scene and the plastic baby Jesus. Jesus lived in the basement. And yet I started thinking about that. What a blessing this would be if it were true of every family. That Jesus lives in your basement. And in your living room, and in your dining room, and in all of your bedrooms, and in your kitchen. Jesus lives in the very bowels of your home. Imagine Jesus living in the places where your kids hang out, and where your family has fun, and where the goodies are stored, and where everybody's free to goof off and be themselves. Imagine Jesus living in the very heart of your home. When Jesus came to earth, he knew that he would be born in Bethlehem and take refuge in Egypt and be reared in Nazareth and visit Jerusalem's temple and travel the countryside surrounding the Sea of Galilee. But his immediate destination was a family. And it wasn't a rich family or an opulent family or a prestigious family or even a large family. In fact, Joseph and Mary's family was poor and humble and nondescript. You remember when Jesus was circumcised, Joseph couldn't afford the customary sacrifice, a lamb. He had to opt for the pauper's exemption, the two turtle doves. That means that Joseph was dirt poor. It had been a long time apparently since the old boy had had two quarters he could rub together. And yet this family had ingredients that money can't buy. It was a loving family, and a loyal family, and a worshiping family, and an obedient family, and a believing family. It was truly a little bit of heaven on earth. And that's why God chose their family as a sanctuary for His Son. I love this thought. Christmas is about family. It was into a family. A man and a woman, not yet intimate but already betrothed and legally committed that the Holy Spirit worked a miracle of conception. It was a family, not a military escort that took the rigorous road trip from Nazareth all the way down to Bethlehem. It was a family, not a mass unit of doctors that camped out in the stable and oversaw the baby's birth. And it was a family, not a royal court, that the shepherds found when they came to see the king. Two years later, it was still a family to whom the wise man handed gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. The institution of the family should be forever ennobled and exalted and dignified and glorified if for no other reason than Jesus was born into a family. And this means that if you have a family, and we all do, you should pay it special attention this Christmas even if your family has been through some tough times lately don't give up on your family don't neglect or ignore your family even a dysfunctional family hey when Jesus entered the world he came to be part of a family and I believe Jesus still targets families he wants to work a miracle in your family this Christmas Remember, Jesus doesn't just love families in general. Oh no, He loves your family specifically. Often when we think of the family of Joseph and Mary, we assume that they were the perfect family. After all, God wouldn't send His sinless son into a flawed family. I mean, He picked a choice couple with a mint marriage. We envision Joseph and Mary sharing a pristine, peaceful, idyllic life together. No way did they have any of the hang ups and the issues and the baggage that we carry. And yet we're so naive. We're so naive with our assumptions. Hey, we forget, Mary was just a little girl. Joseph was a construction guy, inexperienced in these things. You don't think their hearts were full of apprehension and fear and worry and doubt? You bet they were. They had no idea what they were doing. There's a movie called The Nativity Story. It chronicles the events leading up to the birth of Jesus. And one of the scenes paints a picture of a nervous Joseph and Mary trying to sort out their predicament together. Apparently they've been traveling that day down the long rocky road along the Sea of Galilee from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. Joseph must have caught a fish along the way. Mary's cooking a fish dinner. She says with a smile, The baby's moving. Then she rubs her hand across her belly. Joseph looks at her with a mixture of excitement and concern. She asks him, you never really told me about your dream. Apparently Joseph doesn't feel like talking. Mary tries to pry it out of him. No, really, tell me. Joseph answers her as if he's still amazed. He leans in and he says, the angel came. He told me the child within you has been conceived of the Holy Spirit and I shouldn't be afraid. Mary's depending on this man for so much. She asks to ask him, Are you afraid? Joseph whispers, Yes. Are you? She says, Yes. They both giggle nervously. But Mary is thinking far into the future. She continues. She says, Do you ever wonder when we'll know? When we'll know he knows that he's more than just a child? Will it be something he says or a look in his eye? Joseph just shrugs. He's staggering under the weight of the responsibility for fathering God. He admits to Mary, I wonder if, if if, I'll even be able to teach him anything. The scene reminds us that these two were just kids. They didn't know what they were doing. If you think Jesus was born into a family that had it all together... Let me suggest you need to think again. Joseph and Mary were recoiling from events that had caught them off guard. And it changed their lives. And it put them in positions where they were out of control. Out of their, their life was out of control. They were a family. But by anyone's standards, they were just barely a family. I mean, Joseph and Mary had the odds stacked against them. If they'd come to me for counseling, I probably would have cautioned them to step back and slow down a bit, guys. If they'd asked their parents and the good townsfolks what they should do, they might have split up for good. Understand, the Christmas miracle begins with a troubled relationship. A husband and his betrothed wife are struggling to even stay together. I mean, remember, for a long time, Joseph was contemplating an exit strategy. Either have Mary stoned or ship her off to a nearby city so she could start her life over. I don't care how much you've disliked your spouse over the years. I'll bet you've never considered having them stoned. Electric chair, maybe. Perhaps the firing squad. Maybe a bulldozer, but not stoned. I mean, for a long while, Joseph particularly, man, he had some tough... Some serious trust issues that he had to work through. I mean, did he really believe the angel's explanation? I mean, he was trapped between believing the impossible or accepting Mary's infidelity. And that's just the start of a long list of challenges facing this couple. I mean, here was a relationship where at first, the wife was listening to God, while her husband, well, he really wasn't. This is a marriage that starts out with an unexpected pregnancy and all the problems that can cause. I mean, Joseph and Mary are stressed out when they're forced to make a trip home over the holidays. That can be stressful. And obviously Joseph had lousy health insurance. Mary gives birth in a barn. It's been said, the reason Jesus was born in a stable was Joseph had an HMO. (laughs) And I'm sure their budget had tightened considerably when Mary had to start purchasing swaddling clothes. And what about the family's forced Exodus to Egypt? I mean, a relocation only added to the upheaval in their lives. It was obvious that Jesus' family had a rough start. Think it through and you'll agree. Jesus was born to a family facing many of the struggles that your family faces. Joseph and Mary, they didn't have a perfect marriage. And yet Jesus, the one greater than the angels still graced their family with His presence. You see, that first Christmas, the Son of God chose to join a very, very imperfect family. And that's why there's hope for your family and my family this Christmas. Your family, too, might be struggling. In the bowels, in the basement of your house, there's strife and there's anger and there's worry and there's friction. Perhaps your family is on the ropes this morning. Maybe it's down for the count. Maybe there's a lack of trust between family members. Or maybe you're hearing from God and nobody else is. Or maybe somebody else is hearing from God and you're not. Or maybe there's an unexpected pregnancy or some other unexpected circumstance that has heated up the pressure cooker in which you live. You're groping for direction. Maybe it's a trip home that's added some stress to your life. Or maybe a visit from your in-laws. Or maybe it's a lack of income or bad health insurance. Or the kids are a drain. Or you realize that diapers cost even more than swaddling clothes. And why, oh why, does my husband want to chase his dream and move us all over the place to Egypt? We're just now meeting our neighbors here in Bethlehem. It reminds me of the husband and wife who were in the midst of a terrible squabble. They wanted to buy a new vehicle for Christmas. He wanted a heavy-duty truck, and she had her eye on a fast, fancy new sports car. They argued for days over the decision. Finally, the wife, she laid down an ultimatum. She says, if I don't get something that'll go from zero to 180 in four seconds, you're going to experience a very, very lonely Christmas. Well, the husband, he bristled up. He didn't really like her attitude. And so on Christmas morning, there it was. Wrapped in a bright yellow bow. A new bathroom scale. (laughs) Funeral arrangements for the husband are still (laughs) pending. If there's friction in your family this holiday season... If there's trouble between husband and wife or parent and child, whatever you do, don't give up. Don't anybody give up. Even if your family is coming apart faster than gift wrapping on Christmas morning, listen to the good tidings of great joy. Jesus wants to be part of your family. The Holy Spirit wants to overshadow you and yours and work a miracle in your midst. He wants to spread goodwill toward men and peace on earth and have it commence in your family. Jesus brings new life to dying hopes. He brings fresh breath to stale relationships. Pastor Gordon MacDonald, he talks about a Nigerian lady he met after a speaking engagement. She was a prominent physician in a local hospital. She identified herself to MacDonald by an obviously American name. That's when he asked, What's your African name? Well, she immediately strung together several beautiful rhythmic sim- syllables. Her name had a musical quality to it. McDonnell asked her, What does your name mean? She replied, Child who takes the anger away. Of course, a pastor, he can smell a good story when one comes across his path. And so he asked her to explain the meaning, the, the story behind the name. And this was the lady's answer. My parents were forbidden to marry, but they loved each other, and they defied the family opinion and married anyway. For several years, their parents refused to have any contact with them until my mother became pregnant with me. And when my grandparents held me in their arms for the first time, the walls of hostility came down. I was the one who swept the anger away. And that's the name my mother and father gave to me. Well, this would be a good name for Jesus when he was born. One who sweeps the anger away. For when a person comes to the manger and bows before the newborn king, Jesus takes away the anger and the pride and the prejudices. You see, Jesus doesn't just forgive us, but in so doing, he enables us to forgive others. He doesn't just love us, but he loves us in such a way where we can turn around and love others, even those that we thought were unlovable. Christmas is all about the harmony and happiness that Jesus wants to bring to our lives when we invite him to join our family. Author C.S. Lewis, he wrote a classic tale entitled The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Perhaps you saw the movie, The Chronicles of Narnia. It's an allegory that displays the gospel. Aslan, the lion, he dies to save the young boy Edmund. Then Aslan rises from the dead to lead a campaign against the witch that's in control of the land of Narnia. Well, obviously the message is obvious. Revelation 5 refers to Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus died to save us. And then he rose from the dead and he promises to return to free this world from the dominion of Satan. I once read an article about C.S. Lewis and his own personal struggles at the time that he wrote this story. He started to work on the novel at a particularly miserable period in his life. He reflected on his mood at the time of the writing. Lewis said, at first it seemed a bumbling story, flat and uninspired. What turned it around, though, was the introduction of The Lion, Not only did Lewis finish The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, apparently he was on quite a roll because the series included six more novels. But after finishing the last story, Lewis commented on the first. He said, Only when the great lion, Aslan, came bounding into it did I stop bumbling and the story began to move in its proper course. Aslan pulled the whole story together. And when you let the king of the jungle... When you let the lion, our Lord Jesus, bound into your family, you and the folks you love will stop bumbling. And you'll pull together and head in a proper course. You see, in our text, the writer of Hebrews, he proves a vital point. To which of the angels did God ever say, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son God defined Himself in family terms as father and son proving forever that Christmas is about family. Last year was a very special Christmas for my family. Some of you were here last Christmas Eve. I was preaching the Christmas Eve service while my oldest son and daughter-in-law were in the throes of having a child. Just before I got up to speak, I checked my phone and I got a text message. It said, Jess is pushing. Pray for Jess. Well, we did. And when I finished my sermon last Christmas Eve, I looked at my phone again, and there was this picture. little picture of Quincy. He had made it. It was a Christmas Eve I'll never forget. And you know, as I think about it, all my Christmas memories are about my family. They're about experiences that I've had with my family. Hey, you can take away all of the presents and the tree... And the decorations, I don't even like putting them up anyway. And the parties and the eggnog and even Kathy's pancakes on Christmas morning. You can take it all away. And Christmas will still be Christmas for me if my family's still intact. Christmas is about family. And yet, why do we make it about so many other things? From snatch and grab and fight the mob on Black Friday to who can overindulge their kids the most, to the stress of finding just the right tree for the living room. Remember this Christmas what really matters. Prioritize your family this Christmas. If there's a bridge that needs to be rebuilt, or a fence that needs to be mended, or a hatchet that needs to be buried, or a statement that needs to be stated... By all means, let's get busy. I guarantee for folks living in Newtown, Connecticut this year, this Christmas is going to be all about family. Spouses are going to lay aside their petty grievances. They're going to hug the children that are still with them as they mourn the 20 others that they can no longer hug. But I am certain that every Christmas thought in Newtown, Connecticut is going to revolve back around to their family family members grow familiar that's our problem and with anything familiar we get tempted to neglect the commonplace and yet in the wake of the Newtown tragedy we've all been put on notice never take your family for granted Christmas is a time for us all to reaffirm our commitment to our family when your family gathers together this Christmas Remember, Jesus is looking for an entry into your family. The first Christmas was all about Jesus joining a family. And every Christmas since, Jesus has been looking for families who will open up and invite him in. This year, you'll be the one who opens the door. You'll be the one who believes that Jesus loves your family and will work the healing that your family needs. Remember this weekend that your family is just a prayer away from Jesus working a Christmas miracle in the people that you love. You see, Christmas proves that God's heart beats for every family, but especially your family. Father, we thank you for your word today, for your love for us. We thank you, Lord, for every family represented among us this morning. Lord, we do pray that You'll overshadow each family and You'll work Christmas miracles in their hearts and in their lives and in their relationships. Lord, may they drop their pride and humble their hearts and seek to love each other and seek to let You come and be a part of their family. Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word today and for Your encouragement to us. Thank You for what Christmas is all about. It's about family. It's about faith. It's about worship. Work in our hearts this Christmas season. We pray it all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.